Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Ball Caps and Bagpipes, a Scottish baseball podcast. I'm the Glasgow Comets, John McKellar. And I'm Jason Durr, former league president and Baseball Scotland Hall of Famer. Jason, we don't have any Scottish baseball to talk about. The National League is still on hiatus due to COVID-19. But we've thrown together what we think are going to be a really great couple of episodes here. It's a two-part sit-down with uh, ex-Comets head coach Sander Harrison. Uh, he, you know, told some really great stories, I think, uh, and I can't wait for the listeners to be able to hear both parts. Part one's coming up just shortly. Before we get into that, though, uh, in the aftermath of my, my last sit-down with Saeed uh, on the previous episode, we popped a couple of posts up on the old social media, which uh, is Twitter, at Caps and Pipes, and just Ball Caps and Bike Pipes on Facebook. Uh, the question was... Uh, what are your favourite baseball video games? And quite a few folk have uh, left comments, so let's get to those before we get into the interview. Um, Tayport Breakers Baseball Club, uh, which I'm going to assume is Jason West, uh, just popped up a, a YouTube trailer for Ken Griffey Jr. presents Major League Baseball on the Super Nintendo with the uh, the added comment, I've played the wheels off of that one, which I think he probably speaks for the youth of America in general at that point in time. Uh, quite a popular series of games, I know, and uh, that's certainly one that Saeed had a lot of love for. Graham Munsey, uh, I forget the name of it, but a mate had a robot baseball game on Mega Drive. No humans, all the players were robots with various different powers. It was a Japanese Mega Drive he had and a Japanese cartridge, so not sure if the game was ever released over here. I've tried Googling it and can't find it, and then in parentheses, it wasn't Super Baseball 2020. This is when we might need to get Saeed on. Uh, he might be the guy to look into this and see if we can figure out which game it was that Graham here played. Uh, thank you very much for your comment, Graham. Um, not ringing any bells for you, I'm imagining. Uh, I don't believe you're fluent in Japanese. No, I uh, my Japanese is pretty much Konnichiwa. <laughs> uh, so I think Saeed's going to be the one that's going to be all yeah, of that. I know Konnichiwa, obviously. And also I know um, Moto Panokeko. From uh, Ooh, from inherent that? vice, <laughs> uh, it might or it might or <laughs> might not mean more pancakes. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> more yeah. pancakes. That's it's, a sweet uh, to know. It's a very strange film, so it might not actually be real Japanese that he's shouting. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, Graham Nelson, uh, friend of the show, Graham Nelson, previous guest, uh, says the Bigs Two on GameCube. I know that's a game that you've played the hell out of back in the day. I love that game. My friend let me borrow his GameCube for a few months, and it, it had Dynasty mode, and I loved that thing. That was so much fun to play. Adam Pender says VR baseball. Love the bit of VR baseball. He's popped an image up of VR baseball '97. It was uh, VR baseball '99 that I used to play back in the day. Um, thanks for your comment, Adam. Uh, Andy Vaughn, my teammate. This was just absolutely fantastic, and he's left us an image of Hardball '94 on the Mega Drive. Um, and for me, the comment of the thread over on Facebook is uh, Xander Harrison's, who we're going to hear from just shortly, today's uh, interview guest. There will never be anything better than All-Star Baseball 2004. Um, I have to wholeheartedly concur with that, Xander. It's the best baseball video game ever made, in my opinion. Uh, let's uh, have a wee look on the Twitter, a couple of comments there. Uh, British Baseball Podcast, that's Matt over at British Baseball Podcast. We urge you to give his show a listen and a follow on, face- uh, on Facebook and Twitter. I did very much enjoy John and Sai's chat, so much so that me and the little one have been playing on the SNES this evening. 
that's really sweet. Uh, thanks for thanks for that reply, Matt. And uh, I hope you've been going easy on the little one, or it might be the vice versa. Who knows? <laughs> I'm not sure how, uh, how how much what what the skill level is there uh, with Matt, but that's that's a really sweet comment. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, two strike noise. I played a card game similar to Strat called Status Pro for many years, but my all-time baseball video game was Al Michaels Hardball. I played the hell out of every iteration of that. I also played a lot of Pete Rose Pen Fever. Tax the hell out of my first computer. Uh, these aren't games that I'm aware of, but I would imagine that you probably played Al Michaels Hardball. No, I, I knew of the game there, but you're talking about old 286, probably five and a quarter oh, floppy right, disk. That might even be before so. your time then, Jason. No, that was definitely during my time, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, but I did play some game. I, I tried to find it down there, and you could play with Hall of Famers uh, by the decades, and it was a lot of fun there. I remember playing that, but I could not track it down for the life of me. So uh, maybe ne- you know, another week or two I can, and we'll figure it out. Uh, well, that's all we have there. Uh, thanks so much to everyone for their comments and replies. Uh, it's been a lot of fun in the last couple of episodes, chatting video games um, and speaking with Saeed. that. Uh, just his baseball story was fascinating and then the chance to sit and shoot the shit with him for a half hour about video games uh, and in particular baseball video games was great. So I would definitely urge you all to go back and listen to that two-part episode uh, when you're done with this one. And speaking of this one, uh, let's switch over to part one of Xander's interview, Jason. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I've known Xander since 2007, so I feel like we're definitely going old school. Awesome, on this one. man. He's, he's, he's great. Please enjoy. Um, so, Jason, we have uh, a guest that I've been wanting to get on for quite some time. Uh, my first ever Glasgow Comets coach, Xander Harrison. Yep, we're excited to have Xander on tonight. Uh, I remember Xander well from when he first joined when he started the Scottish League, so this is going to be a lot of fun. Xander, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for joining us. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Uh, I guess, like we said, it's a long t- It's been a long time coming, so glad to finally make it on. Brilliant. Um, let's start from the very beginning. Obviously, you've been playing baseball for probably the better part of fifteen or so years, at least uh, as a as a youngster. How did you get first off involved in, or how did you become a fan of baseball originally? Um, yeah, that's right, loosely. So. Um, you know, growing up, I kind of got into football pretty late um, in comparison to normal kids. So, you know, I wasn't particularly good at that, although I did like playing sport. Um, and I must have been about 11 or 12 years old when um, someone, actually Michael McCusker's mother from, uh, who you know, from Glasgow, she was coming around our school handing out leaflets um, about baseball training in the school on Thursday evenings. So, Went along with a few friends. I knew a couple of guys that had been doing sessions. Um, and yeah, I just found it very accessible. Uh, the, you know, it was difficult to get used to the hand-eye, as I'm, as I'm sure that, that we've all been through that at some point. Um, but yeah, I just loved it, picking up, getting getting gradually better at it. Um, obviously, there was this was back when there was a great youth set up in Glasgow, where there was plenty of um, parents to volunteer. Um, there was a, lo- a load of kids that were going, I think, 200 kids at some point. Um, recently, the years before that, they'd sent two teams to represent Scotland in the, the Little League World Series qualifiers. So there was a, a great abundance of coaching and volunteers to help us um, get in with that and keep everyone entertained. 
and obviously through watching it, I became more interested and gained a lot more knowledge through uh, probably in its later years because a lot of people remember it uh, from being much older, but the baseball on Channel 5 as well, which was also pitched at a very accessible level for the um, you, the guys just reasonably new to the game, obviously not being brought up with it in the UK. Now, you're a White Sox fan. Uh, how did you end up picking the White Sox as your team, Xander? Yeah. Do you know, I've actually been asked that quite a lot recently. Um, being down here, you know, there's usually a lot of Yanks that are interested in this kind of thing. But um, So when I was, when I, was um, when I started playing, they used to have different teams and it was basically the old the old majestic T-shirt uniforms that they would, they would give out to different um, groups of kids depending on the what size they had and it was um, that they just made the teams that way so I think it was like would always be like the Blue Jays or the, the Diamondbacks in the old purple and black uniforms or the Marlins in the old green uniforms that's how far back we're going now um, so I was initially put on the White Sox um, and yeah I guess that gave me a basis to sort of follow a team as I was looking to get into the game um, fortunately enough, the first year I started watching baseball um, seriously, they won the World Series, which at the time I didn't really understand the significance of. But obviously nowadays I realise that doesn't happen every day. So um, I guess I've uh, I've got my best days behind me from that perspective. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think the White Sox are going to be a good team again in the next couple of years. Um, it's funny you mentioned that the first year you started watching uh, that the White Sox won the World Series. Of course, uh, the first year I started watching the Yankees, uh, they were coming off a three straight World Series and actually lost the World Series that year in Game 7. And it was uh, quite a while by Yankee standards before I would see them lift the trophy again. Um, do you have any favourite White Sox memories? Um, I mean, obviously the, the World Series was, was great. Uh, I did... Because Channel 5 used to be on every Sunday and Wednesday, but they did show every World Series game when it was on because they're usually, they start midweek, I guess. But um, yeah, so the best, me- the memories would be definitely the, some of the World Series games, I think. Uh, initially, they were down 6-2 in game two. Paul Kinerko hit a grand slam to tie the game. And then uh, Scott Pesetnik, who hadn't hit a home run in regular season, hit the walk-off home run off. Brad Lidge, who was an untouchable closer for the Houston Astros at the time. Um, so that was a fairly good memory. The other one was that, for whatever reason, it was on the old VHS, but for whatever reason, I hadn't taped Game 4. And obviously, White Sox clinched a series on Game 4. So I actually found out that they won the, the World Series before school one day on CFAX, which is another old-school reference. <laughs> so I were actually getting a few old-school references in, and I'm not even you know, relatively that old. So I feel like I'm, I'm doing quite well. But, you know, that, that was back in the day. I mean, I, I touched on it a few times. I remember it was twice a week. You had Wednesday and Sunday nights. And you just kind of watched whatever game there was. And, yeah. You know, it wasn't probably until, what, 2008, 2009, the MLB TV actually showed up to, we could actually have the choice of whatever game we wanted to watch. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it was, it was before, um, it was before, Everyone generally had such access to internet data and you know information from all around the world. So um, yeah, you're right. It was literally any game that was on. Um, you know, usually I wouldn't stay up or I wouldn't be allowed to stay up, but I'd tape it and try and watch it the next day and things like that. 
and even when they would always randomly have stuff when uh, American sports was on break, like this week in baseball used to be a massive thing. I don't know if they still do that, actually, but it was just anything that I could really get that was just giving me exposure to this game that I suddenly fell in love with. Uh, yeah, I was all over it. So, um, yeah, I guess it was it was really good to, to get involved in and my life probably wouldn't be the same without it. Xander, let's get back to your time playing as a youngster. Um, so you already touched on how you started playing. When you started playing for the team, though, did you feel that there were any position or positions that you feel like you were better at or that were, you, you were more comfortable with or maybe a favourite position when you were growing up? So initially, and you know, it still happens to an extent, um, they would generally stick who whoever knows the least out in the outfield, which obviously is um, how I started. I'm trying to think. Because uh, I've played pretty much every every position except catching. Um, I did have an interest fairly early on at pitching. Um, our coach, because we were short of pitchers, would line us all up and just make us hit the glove from, um, well, I guess for the age we were, it was 45 feet on the small diamond, but and I felt I was okay hitting the glove. So the position that I was interested in mostly was pitching. And I would always have um, kind of like, if you take like, you know, Danny Quinn on the comments, I was did the same kind of thing when I was younger. I would literally just have set up things in my back garden to try and practice pitching every day um, and gradually get better, you know, work on some different pitches like uh, curveball, for example was probably my favourite pitch when I could throw the ball well. Um, so, yeah, that that was what really took my took my interest the most. And, yeah, I, I did it, as as you know, Jason, I did it pretty much until my arm practically fell off. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, no, I can still, I can throw it a bit now, but it took a few, um, it took a few years to, to get back to be able to throw the ball about 90 feet again, so. Yes, it's, it's been uh, it's been pretty difficult. So I would say, you know, just look after your arm if you are getting into something like that, because once it goes, it goes. So you mentioned that. Um, have you made any changes to your training to kind of try and speed up that process of getting your arm back? Because I know that you did have some pretty serious uh, it was shoulder injuries that you had, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> The thing that really just helped it was time off thrown, um, you know, when I could play. So when I was managing the Comets from about, I don't know what it was, 2014 or something to about 2016, 17, I was playing positions where I would have to rely on my arm less, such as first base or, you know, even in the outfield, sometimes you have to make long throws, but you, you don't have to make them, you know, so often and the cutoff man can come out to help you out. So I think reducing the opportunities for me to have to throw too much was good. Um, yeah, and of course there's all the um, you know there's all the exercises out there that that do help you strengthen your rotator cuff and strengthen your um, like your labrum and things like that, which did help to an extent. But really the rest was good. And then in terms of getting back into throwing, finding a more you find the most sustainable mechanics is probably the way to put it. You know, ways to properly, you know, 
generate the momentum from your body rather than relying on just airing out with your arm is good uh, for you because um, yeah, I remember I would just I would just put everything into it and would be overthrown with my shoulder um, without you know without warming up or warming down or keeping tabs on number of throws to to the extent that a lot of young players are taught to do from a very early age in countries where they do have a lot of coaching and a lot of infrastructure like the US for example I, I know that you've probably seen that if someone from the US comes comes over to play and hasn't thrown for a while then they're a bit apprehensive about getting into the game and stuff whereas you know we would just tell them to get on with it yeah, I mean, that's kind of it. I mean, I remember the first time I showed up at training and Coach Ron was like, great, you're throwing batting practice. I literally hadn't touched the ball in like six years. And I was like, really? <laughs> and so, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's all about just kind of warming up there. But, you know, with our limited resources and time, you just kind of get thrown into it. Yeah, pretty much. And especially when, you know, and, and they sort of at, at this level of the game, the way the state it is in, in terms of amateur levels in the UK, you only have a finite amount of people that can carry out such um, such functions. So probably like an overuse is quite a common thing that you would see as well. So back to the early days uh, as a player then, uh, you came up through the youth ranks and became a member of the Glasgow Baseball Association team in what, say 2007? Um, what are your memories or favourite memories of those early years? Obviously, you guys uh, went from being a bunch of kind of kids in 2007 to winning the league the following year. What are your memories of that time? Um, so the first year, so 2007 would have been the um, the first year that this new, the new Scottish Baseball League, as it's, um, or the Scottish National League, as it's called now, is... Um, was formed, I guess. So there was um, there was just the four teams. Uh, Glasgow had kind of patched a team together from uh, a lot of old um, a lot of old youth players that were coming back and hadn't played for a while. So they they did really struggle. I think um, we we won something like one game that year, and I think the one game was uh, it was against Manchester because for some reason they decided to schedule games against English teams which counted towards the standings um, and I remember at the time like, a couple of people in my team, I think it was myself Jason Stott, Ross Dini were sort of encouraged to get into the adult ranks um, You know, because frankly we were at that age because we'd been playing and training properly we were sort of just as good so it was just good to get experience but it was definitely a lot different swinging a wooden bat versus a metal bat is the first example. Um, and then the next year, th- th- we did get a lot of better players come into the team. The um, it was obviously an amazing year because we won the uh, we won the uh, the league up the year after being so horrible the first year. So that was great. Um, you know, just some of the stories, and it's quite funny to think back that we thought these guys were kind of crazy on the team that would come in with all these stories. And it would be like the kind of stuff that we would have sort of in the days when me and Jason used to run the team, we'd have all sorts of stories of going out like from the night before or two nights before, um, <laughs> you know, people being yeah. people being late for various reasons, which I'm sure still happens. Uh, I remember, so that, I remember yeah. that kind of thing happening. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, being exposed to that from a pretty young age was, was quite funny. Um, 
you know, especially when you think that pretty much anything that comes out of some older people's mouths is hilarious, you know, when you realise it's actually not when you get older. Like, I remember we used to laugh at everything Geo said. And um, now I think, all right, to be fair, half of the stuff is still pretty funny. But, um, but yeah, it was <laughs> back then, like, <laughs> like a younger Geo was, um, was a funny one to be around as a kid anyway. Yeah, definitely. His sense of humour, I don't think, ever dampened, uh, even when his frustrations grew with, uh, you know, father time intervening in things and, and kind of leading to, obviously, his retirement last year. Um, talk about Gio as a mentor. Uh, I know that you played alongside Gio, uh, you, both you and uh, my new coach, Jason Stott, played alongside Gio for a long time. What was he like as a mentor to you guys? Uh, mentors, uh, mentor as a is an interesting word, I think. Yeah, in terms of the life experience he had and he'd been around, I mean, not necessarily not baseball teams his whole life, although he had been playing for about 20 years or so at the time. Um, just being around adult sports teams his whole life, generally just, you know, how, he'd, how it was more of a, at the recreational level, more of a kind of lads environment. Um Whereas, you know, we were just sort of two kids come, or a few kids coming and taking it pretty seriously um, at the start anyway. And, um, yeah, so just I like the fact that he didn't take himself too seriously, generally speaking. But, um, yeah, at the same time, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, there was few a few situations, as you alluded to, John, where there would be, you know, sort of tempers flaring, especially, you know, when we were losing the game, usually there'd be a couple of flashpoints, which you know, generally speaking, we had to we had to pick up the the, the flak for a bit in terms of dealing with the opponents who had been outraged by some things. And um, you're just a shaking the worst things to mind. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, and the and obviously <laughs> with people who are coming into to the team or the club with different expectations, and maybe um, you could really see how 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 Gio would rub people up a, a, the wrong way. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, as part of my baseball memories, I don't think they would really be too um, – they would, they would not be anywhere near the same if it wasn't for, for Gio being a, being a big factor in a lot of the time that I've played. So I will thank him for that. And, yeah, we, and because we did sort of co-manage the team for a bit at, at the comments, like, you know, just all the times away from the field where we would spend time together, um, just getting his perspective on life, obviously as a, a much senior citizen to me was uh, was quite eye opening. So so yeah, it was uh, it has been enjoyable. Yeah, I I kind of would like him. I would like him to Scott Brown, the Celtic player. You know, he's the kind of guy that if he's on your team and things are going well, it's great. But when you're against him, he's insufferable. I can imagine mm. that playing against you would be so fucking so frustrating at times uh, because he did know how to rile people up oh yeah d- depending on the circumstance it was um, yeah it was unbelievable some of it <laughs> <laughs> um, so you guys won the uh, Scottish National League in 2008 um, before a kind of almost a decade or so of the Edinburgh teams start to dominate um, courtesy of my co-host over there Um Talk us through those next few years between when you guys won the league and when the two teams, the Comets and the Galaxy, split or split off to to, to the separate teams. 
Um, there were some decent years and there were some not so great years. What were some of the challenges that you and Jason, who by that point were running the team, um, sort of encountered year in and year out? And how did you guys uh, approach tackling those? Yeah. Um, one thing to mention, yeah, because we obviously had um, Darren McCulloch, who managed the club before that, who decided to leave. Um, and it was, yeah, they, when all of the... Um, the possible candidates lined up. It was always going to be me and Jason in some capacity um, dealing with the the club. So at the time, the main challenge generally was, and it was for probably all the clubs, and I would say has been in some cases and some teams probably since then or until the last couple of years, with just keeping the club's heads above water when it comes to participation, to actually have the numbers to compete or to run a baseball team. Uh, at that time, that was again, and back to the old school internet references, that was when, I guess, most teams in the UK sort of had a website per se, but were never really updated or whatever. We used to have an old website that um, Craig Patrick, who was the sons of one of the old youth coaches, um, he was the, he had the only admin access. And I think that website, that, that branch of websites went under anyway, so we didn't really have anything to start from. So the challenge was to get more more members because we were looking at, when we arrived, we are looking at, okay, we'll get maybe 10 people registered. And, okay, all those 10 people are going to arrive, but in terms of actually growing the game, we need to branch out and need to get, you know, because there was always going to be baseball players coming into Glasgow, whether it be students, expats, etc. So we initially decided to set up a Facebook. And I would say that we were a bit of a trendsetter in that sense, just because we we got the Facebook going, okay, I expected it just to be all of the, the member players and some people finding it through Google and asking us questions and coming down. But it seemed like a lot of people were genuinely interested and you know, not long after that, the Edinburgh Club seemed to follow suit with their Facebook groups or social medias as well. Um, and just the content we were putting up there, like weekly updates on training, updating up to the minute if it's cancelled. Um, probably most famously, as we talked about, the game reports. Uh, just anything, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, anything to just uh, anything just to show that there's active content out there was was sort of that got us the got us the numbers coming along to training and then that was good that was really successful um we you know the gba page now as as i checked a few weeks ago probably has something around a thousand followers which by an amateur sports team standard is pretty good uh so it just shows how much how helpful that was in the early years to get that off the ground and actually get the participation up and then the next challenge was We've got the participation up. How do we get a um, how do we get a group of players, so, uh, a, a roster of twenty five people, to get innings for everyone and satisfy everyone? Because I remember we did have sort of twenty twenty five people every single week, and we'd be sneaking people in for a half inning here or there, uh, just in games, and you know just because of the whole participation aspect and trying to get people to to actually play the game, it, it did sort of sacrifice the quality of some of the the game-like situations. It was less competitive. So 
in terms of trying to force the standard to to rise again and satisfy everyone, that's when we decided to try and break out the two teams, uh, which I guess became the the galaxy in the comments through a popular vote. But I mean, I bought to put it out there. I didn't vote for either of those names, but I guess they just stuck. <laughs> and um... so, so my question: I always assume that you guys chose those names because there was the Glasgow Stars previously, and you guys were just branching out from that one. I think the uh, I think that was the um, I think that was one of the the reasons behind the names there. But there was probably like six or seven names that were on the list, and those two got the most two votes. And apparently we didn't know. Apparently there was before the stars there was the Glasgow Comets was an old team, so we kept having to rebrand it as Glasgow Comets established twenty fourteen or whatever it was. Right. Okay. Um, and yeah, that was uh, that was good. It was also it was obviously difficult because in terms of the the standard of play again, we had to look at coaching people to, you know, be able to deal with game situations and positions that players of much greater experience would usually play like yeah you, you immediately start to think when you break out or two rosters you're thinking okay who's pitching on that team who's catching on that team you know who's playing shortstop for example is just three of the main ones so then it then the challenge became focused on training and how to make training more specific to people's need, like people's aspirations in playing the game, but also trying to stay realistic to their physical abilities, which um, I guess some people had different uh, like different ideas than than others on what their actual ability was to play a certain position. Is um, it's quite common as well. But yeah, well, kind of really happy how we dealt with it. I would say it's in a much better place now, uh, and I'm sure you're going to touch on that when um, when we talk about sort of how the club has transitioned again since I've left and not everything else. And we're back, and that was part one of a two-part sit-down with Xander Harrison, Mike's Glasgow Comets teammate. A great interview, as the listeners have just heard, and we look forward to bringing you guys part two, hopefully, next uh, next week. Moving on, what do you have uh, for this day in baseball history on Bubble and Baseball, Jason. It's August 23rd as we are recording. I mean, we're right at the arse end of August 23rd, but August 23rd nonetheless. So this day in baseball in 1999, Ken Griffey Jr. became the third major leaguer to hit 200 home runs over four seasons. Now, I'll give you one, but you got to guess the other one. So the first one is Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth sounds like the obvious one, yeah. Uh, For the other one, I'm going to say Mark McGuire. Correct. It was Mark McGuire. Yeah, he had some some kind of really dominant years where he was just smashing. He was. He did good. Got hurt for a few seasons and came back. And uh, we'll ignore the steroids, but he had some good seasons. Certainly one guy that was never touched by the taint of the steroid uh, thing is actually Junior himself. Griffey Junior, who we were talking uh, off air before we started recording. Uh, about Griffey Jr.'s disdain for the New York Yankees, obviously, which is quite well documented. Uh, for any listeners over here who might not be aware of that, do you want to fill them in on why Griffey would never play for the New York Yankees? So it came out, the documentary came out in April, and he said why he hate the Yankees, because uh, there was a one point he was a kid was saying, asking for autographs and telling him to play for the Yankees, and he said that would be the last team he ever played for. 
And it goes stems to the time when his dad was playing for the Yankees and a clubhouse. They were, uh, it was pregame. They were doing batting practice and a clubhouse attendant had told uh, his dad that Ken had to go. He wasn't allowed in the clubhouse, uh, which was pretty standard practice during the time there. Um, and he, he told Ken to go look across the diamond and it was Craig Nettle's son taking ground balls at third base and go, just remember that, that, uh, um, I, uh, they asked you to go and he didn't have to go. So, uh, I think that fueled, um, his dominance over the Yankees through the, the playoffs in the regular season. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of understandable. Um, it's kind of weird being a Yankee fan and loving Griffey as much as I do, <laughs> but I don't think I'm the only one by any stretch. Uh, it's... It's quite depressing to think of how much more of a legacy Griffey Jr. could have ended up having if it weren't for those serious injuries that he had when he went to Cincinnati. I mean, I think for my money, he's probably the greatest clean uh, ball player of all time if uh, if that doesn't happen. You know, from your perspective, you might see it as a serves him right for leaving Seattle kind of situation. <laughs> like you say, he was very dominant for Seattle, particularly in those 95 playoffs against the Yankees. Um, what's your can take on that? You know, uh, I was bitter, really bitter when he left us uh, to go to Cincinnati. I, I understood him, um, but he he was hurt in Cincinnati, so there wasn't like there was these amazing seasons that we were missing out on. He always seemed to have sort of injury. He was out for two weeks here, a month here, so uh, I don't really feel like I missed a whole lot. But I, you know, it, it definitely was a, a dagger to the heart when we we traded him. I can imagine. Um, on this day, uh, not in baseball history, uh, 1978, uh, legendary Kobe Bryant was born. Uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that. He would be 42 today, uh, but we obviously very tragically lost him in the early part of this year. Uh, I was a, more of a basketball fan as a youngster. I grew up watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls, and obviously Kobe Bryant came along off the back of that and was kind of the best player in the league at the time. Two of the all-time best, uh, arguably the two best of all time, uh, certainly, you would probably throw LeBron into the mix these days. I'm not. I've never really watched much of LeBron. I stopped watching basketball years ago. But um, yeah, it's certainly worth mentioning uh, Kobe's birthday. So, who was your actual favorite non-star in the NBA? Um, well, I was a Bulls fan. Um, I mm-hmm. uh, kind of non-Bull players. I always kind of liked Glenn Rice, who played for I think the Lakers. Uh, Miami he was drafted from Miami and then went to Lakers. Yeah, he was he was a great three point shooter. I remember for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yep, yes, he was. Yeah, and he was always a guy that I would uh, I would always pick him up in the video games because of his three point shooting ability. <laughs> I remember playing Fox Sports NBA Basketball two thousand, and he was excellent from the from distance in those games. Um, but yeah, where can the listeners find more bubble and baseball content, Jason? So you can find my daily post on baseball history uh, bubble and baseball. Uh, on, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, if you're looking for any kind of jerseys, you have dugoutclassics.com. Indeed, and you can find the show on both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, just search Ball Caps and Bagpipes, and on Twitter, it's at Caps and Pipes. Um, check out our anchor.fm homepage, anchor.fm slash Caps and Pipes. And of course, you can hear the podcast uh, at your podcast provider of choice. It's more or less everywhere. Uh, you can find myself at John Caps Pipes on Twitter. And uh, that's going to be pretty much it for this week. Have a good one. We'll see you guys next week. Catch you next week for part two. Bye-bye.